very thoughtful of Ross and the others to get me this chair. I just don't expect to be called bishop or anything like that <laughs> because of it. It is, a cho- it is a privilege, though, to be chosen of God to preach his word, and it's what my heart's desire was this day. I um, rejoice when I am weak because I know that Christ is not limited by my weaknesses. The elders asked me when I returned to share with you what God has been teaching me. Maybe these hard lessons will be a blessing uh, somehow to you and buttress your faith, whether you're going through suffering presently or you may be called alongside someone else who's suffering or you may face it in the future. I want to speak to you from the passage I didn't get to speak at the uh, Suffering Conference, 1 Peter 4, 12 to 19, if you would open there, but also just share a few lessons from my heart. Um, Our family has been put through what you might call the crucible of suffering for the last 12 months. Cancer in the bones, they say, is one of the most painful, and now I certainly don't doubt that. Uh, I went from jogging this past spring to barely moving at all in the fall, um, Right now, a tumor infringes my right arm, so I've lost almost all strength there. I've lost about 55 pounds, and if you knew me, I didn't really have that much to lose in the first place. I certainly don't have more to lose now. Susan and uh, the children and uh, my mother, when before she passed, felt the suffering uh, along with me. I learned that I'm not a strong man. I learned that I am weak, I'm very weak. Without God's word to protect my thinking, without the strengthening of my family and the body of Christ, I don't know what would have happened to me. And I want you to know that. My example in suffering might alert you to the need to prepare for suffering. I have learned that uh, we must think hard, very hard, about suffering because it is hard, much harder than those who have not been through it may imagine. If you don't think rightly about suffering, then when you enter into it, you may indeed doubt God's love for you. You certainly will struggle in faith. I have seen people walk away from the faith, and that is a clear and present danger as well. Yet strangely, suffering is an opportunity not to jettison your faith, but to grow closer to God. Do you believe that? To rely on him in ways you didn't realize you needed to before. Dr. John Piper actually urges people in a booklet, it's a nice little resource, it's called Don't waste your cancer because you can get so close to God when you suffer. So I want to read our passage, 1 Peter 4, 12 to 19. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for the testing, for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that 
also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler, but if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Well, here's a brief background to 1 Peter. The Christians to whom Peter was writing in the first century were living in a society where their faith was routinely ridiculed. See if this sounds a little bit like our world today. Christianity was not yet under official persecution from the Roman state. The persecution then was mostly social and verbal. Peter gives a few glimpses of the kind of suffering they endured, if you want to browse through the book as I mentioned these verses. In chapter 1, verse 6, Peter calls them various trials. That means that it wasn't all persecution. There were other things that they were running into. Poverty, I'm sure, was one of them. Sickness. Chapter 2, verse 12, it says unbelievers were slandering Christians. Insults were being hurled at Christians according to chapter 3 and verse 9. Intimidation was going on, chapter 3, verse 14, and then chapter 3, verse 16 just mentions more of the same. Because of all of this, Peter wrote a letter to encourage believers, to encourage them to prepare for suffering, more suffering. If you look at chapter 4 and verse 1, it says, arm yourselves for the purpose of suffering as Christ suffered. Even later in chapter 5, verse 9, it reveals the same suffering Peter's readers were in experiencing were going on throughout the Roman world. It was not full-blown persecution, yet they were not being thrown to the lions. Nevertheless, their suffering was real, and winds of more violent persecution were already blowing. So Peter wrote this letter, and he wrote it to encourage believers. The letter really tells believers, you have a great salvation, but what you need to do is focus on that final day when Christ will be revealed in glory. And that really is your hope, and you're going to have to focus there because this world is going to get worse. Really, what do we learn from the passage? Well, I learned this, and I already knew it, but I had to learn it again. God is good. And God has good purposes even for something bad like our suffering. I found eight brief encouragements about suffering in the passage. I'm not going to take long with any of them. You won't hear my, no, my normal exposition, but I want to give you just some thoughts through eight of these, okay? Encouragement number one. Eight encouragements. This is your outline. Encouragement number one. Suffering does not mean, does not mean that God does not love us. Suffering doesn't mean that. God is still with us when we suffer. God is still working his purposes when we suffer. Be assured, everything is going to work out to the benefit of believers. That's how God has organized it doesn't seem so now, but in the end it will. When you feel the sting of persecution or other kinds of suffering, don't think that you have been forgotten on high. Don't think God's disfavor has fallen upon you. As verse 12 states, you are, there's a little word in there that's very important, beloved. Do you see it? That means what? That means you're loved. 
By who? By God. You are dear ones to him. In chapter 3, verse 12, it promises believers, the eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous and his ears attend to their prayer, but sometimes it doesn't seem like that. He does not see me, and he's certainly not answering my prayers. But God promises, yes, that's what he's doing. No matter what you may feel when you suffer, indeed, I felt abandoned by God. I had a couple of very terrible days, uh, moments of darkness that just felt that were settling upon me. Never, never experienced that before. No help was coming. Didn't matter how hard I prayed. No relief. God had to strengthen me through that. He had to remind me what I already knew and what I already preached. I had to affirm out loud, my God is good. My faith is not a feeling. My faith is based on a fact, facts of a gospel that has been given in history, and it's true. The proof of God's incredible love has already been given. It's already been inscribed in this very letter. Look back at chapter 2 and verse 24. It says, Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. We said we're celebrating the Christmas season. Why do you think he was born into this world? He was born to what? He was born to die. He was born to suffer. Who is he suffering for? Not, not himself. He was suffering for us. Jesus already laid it all down for me and for you in love. He was whipped. He was beaten. He was crucified. Yes, he was reviled. Why? To pay for our sins. And to bring us mercifully and safely to our eternal God. I love Revelation 1.5. It says, to him who loves us. Present tense, the verb. I checked it. Present tense. To him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. You know, if you're not a Christian, you haven't been released from your sins, and I have no idea why you're not giving your life to Christ because you'll pay for all of it. You'll suffer for eternity. Who would choose to do that? Indeed, in chapter 2, verse 25, it assures us Jesus is the shepherd and the guardian of our souls. I need a shepherd and a guardian for my soul. Jesus said the good shepherd does not run away and abandon his sheep. He doesn't ever do that. He guards our souls. That's encouragement number one. Encouragement number two. Suffering should be expected. That's verse 12 also, looking at it again. We're told not to be surprised by persecution. The true church is always going to be opposed. doesn't seem so in America, but it's going to happen. Jesus said something similar in John 15, 20. If they persecuted me, they will also what? Persecute you. Good, just making sure you're still there. This is a Christ-hating and Christ-rejecting world. Back in chapter 2-7, it said, Jesus is the stone which the builders rejected. Chapter 3, verse 19 says, people love darkness rather than light. Why? Because their deeds are evil. And you represent Jesus, so they're going to hate you. It says in Ephesians 5-8, you are light in the Lord. You're too bright for their sins to be comfortable around. They're going to hate you. The more you 
Don't just say you're a Christian, but you stand up for righteous things, the more they'll hate you. You want the persecution, say, speak against something that's wrong behavior, then you'll get the persecution. If you just say, I love Jesus, they won't say anything about you. But if you say, Jesus hates sin, and you specify what that sin is, then they're going to hate you. So persecution and other forms of tribulation are to be expected. Personally, I was not expecting pancreatic cancer four and a half years ago. James chapter 1 and verse 2 says that we will encounter various trials. Do you know what the word encounter means? It means to fall into them and then be surrounded by them. It's like you're going along, you fall into a pit, you're surrounded about it, you didn't choose it, but you're in it, and now you've got to deal with it. We don't ask for them. That's what happened to me. Someday, something will happen to you. Don't be surprised when suffering happens. Life is not happy-go-lucky and smooth sailing all of the time. If you have that expectation when suffering hits you, you're going to have a very, very hard time. Expect suffering. Expect hard times. Drill that into your mind. Don't act like it's not supposed to happen to you. And then you'll do better. You'll understand the world in which you live. Encouragement number three. God designed suffering for our testing. That's in verse 12 still. God designed suffering for our testing. From God's perspective, our suffering is, quote, the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing. God designs our suffering to refine our character. Fire does not just burn. Fire is a very special thing, isn't it? It purifies. When gold passes through the fire, it burns off, the, off all the worthless dross, right? Gold get, that goes through the fire gets tested. It comes out on the other side pure. Back in chapter 1 and verse 6, uh, verse six and 7, Peter wrote, quote, the proof of your faith is more precious than gold, which is perishable. So suffering is not bad luck. It comes with divine design. And since we know these kinds of trials are necessary, then we can have some joy in facing them and realize that. Again, in James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, it says, Consider it joy. It goes on to say, You will see God work endurance into your life, and then you'll see your character completed. Here's something I want you to understand. Not all of the suffering that you go through or that I go through is because God is chastening us. But all of it is because God is completing us. We all need to be completed. We all need to mature. Have you read the book of Job recently? You know, Ike testified last Sunday how it reversed his thinking about his extreme trials at a young age. Do you remember how depressed that Job got in the midst of his great sufferings? I know I got the lowest I've been in my life. I'm not a particularly uh, down person. I always find a way to bob back up. Someone wants to ask me, what happens, you know, when you get depressed? I said, well, if I get a little down, Sue will pick me up. And, you know, if she gets a little down, you know, I pick her up. But what happens when you both get down? I said, I never let that happen. Well, never been through this before. Like Job did, we realize God's going to refine us. He's going to take us where we don't want to go. Job said in Job... 2310, in the midst of his trial, when God has tried me, I shall come forth as, and there's that analogy again, what? Gold, gold. Suffering squeezes us. It squeezes out residual pride, self-sufficiency, grumbling, lusts. You could probably fill in a few blanks there. And trust me, we all have a lot more of those vices than we're willing to admit, at least publicly. Here's something I want you to write down and memorize. Suffering speeds up sanctification. <laughs> They're all S's. 
See, you could memorize it. Anybody can bless God when they're rich and famous and living like a king or a life of ease. Believers who continue to praise God through the suffering bring even more glory to God because he just says, well, what he said to Job when Satan came to accuse him, have you considered my servant Job? And then Satan knew the worst attack would be to attack his skin. So he went after him then. But Job remained true. In fact, his words were, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away what? Blessed be the name of the Lord. Encouragement number four. I know you didn't think I was going to get through eight, but we are. <laughs> Suffering causes us to rejoice even more at Christ's coming. Suffering causes us to rejoice even more at Christ's coming. This will make Pastor David Mora very happy. Verse 13, the end times. Verse 13, look at that. There's a transition word there, but, at the beginning of verse 13, and it tells us instead of being shocked or surprised by persecution, here's our response that we should have, and I know it's hard, but there it is. Do you see it? It's the word rejoice. Bewilderment is not the proper response to suffering. Genuine joy is. You say, that's crazy. No, that's the Christian faith. That's faith in God's sovereign plan for you and for the world. Faith that tells you God is moving everything in life toward a visible reign of his son Jesus when everything's going to be perfect. And then you can't wait. That coming day when Christ is revealed in the clouds with great glory is a day every Christian should be riveted on. It's a day we should be rehearsing every day down here. If you want to live mightily for the Lord now, always be looking for what happens in the future. It tells you it's worth it. To put it in Peter's own words, way back in chapter 1, verse 13, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you when, when, when? At the revelation of Jesus and glory. Because it's going to be such an incredible day. Here Peter writes, to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. Jesus had a lot of suffering. You know, when he entered into this world, you know what one of his names were? was? <laughs> the suffering servant, right? Suffering servant. Now, when you and I suffer in this world, we begin to understand Jesus' love for us a little more that he suffered for us. You begin to fellowship with him more. You know suffering is hard, and then you realize it's very hard, and then you realize it's the hardest thing you've ever faced, and you realize he did it for you, and then you love him more. You fellowship with him more. And we look forward to seeing him. We want to be with him. We want to thank him. We look forward to when he finally arrives in glory and everybody has to look on him in all that shining glory and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, right? Jesus is Lord and we're excited for him. Or when we die and we walk through gates of splendor, as one book said. And that's what it is. You, you'd never, ever experience death as a believer any more than you experience a door. <laughs> you're in one room, you walk through a door, you're in another room, you don't experience the door. I'm in the door. <laughs> no, two big male angels grabbed Granny when she died and escorted her all the way instantly into paradise in the presence of Christ, which Paul said was very much better than down here. So we look forward to that too. 2 Corinthians 5.8, we are of good courage and we prefer rather to be absent from the body. That means for the Christian that we die and to be at home with the Lord. We're not vagabonds. Vagabonds have no home. 
We're pilgrims. We're marching. Just keep thinking about the glorious future when every tear is wiped away from our eyes, when joy bubbles over and you can't describe it. I got asked this past week, what will it be like when we get to heaven before the resurrection? Describe it. And I tried, but I haven't been there yet. I want to do a whole sermon on that because I think it's very important for us to understand what we're going to be getting to do and all of that when we get to heaven because I think it will really, really embolden us. Jesus said for those who follow him, he used one word to the thief on the cross. You remember what word he used to describe it? Paradise. That is not the Baltimore, Washington area. <laughs> Peter preached that on the day of Pentecost, in God's presence, presence is, quote, fullness of joy. Satan wants us to think of it as fullness of boredom. He's a liar, and he will burn in hell forever. Paul wrote in Romans 8, 18. Do you remember any sufferings Paul had? You might want to one day do a Bible study on that and how many times he suffered over a long period of time and then realize that he wrote these words, personalize it. The sufferings of this present time aren't even worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. How did he know? Because he was caught up to the third heaven and saw it. And then he wasn't allowed to explain it. He was supposed to cover that up. But he gave us this little glimpse right here. Man, oh man, oh man. However bad it is here, it is so good for believers there that when we die, we will not be going up to Jesus and saying, why? As soon as we see him, he will be the answer in his glory. We will know why. See, if that is where your hope is, present problems only make you yearn for that day to come more quickly. What is the last prayer in the Bible? Quiz time. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. In other words, deliver us from this world of persecution and suffering and show your splendor. And, and by the way, the Christians who will rejoice the most then are the ones who have suffered the most here. This year, though, I still believe the Lord has more work for me to do. Call me crazy. I just do. I testified to that back in February, I think. I've still been preparing myself for heaven because I'm not a prophet. Mom's passing helped me personally. Just in case the Lord takes me, I laid out a detailed plan for our elder board to find a new senior pastor who would be totally dedicated to expositional preaching in this pulpit. I want a man that knows he's called full-time to this ministry. Nothing else for this pulpit will do. That's what God's doing here, and I don't think you have a thing to worry about with that. I think there'll be hundreds of men that want to come and be part of this church. And right now, I don't want them here. <laughs> But if the Lord wants him here and it's my time, I want to go. Amen. Encouragement number five. Suffering for Christ is a blessing, not a curse. That's up, we're up to verse 14. Verse 14. These kind and wonderful, humble Christians that were in this Roman society were being reviled. And I can think of a lot of people that need to be reviled and castigated and you name it, but not Christians. So unfair when you see that going on in our society. Who are the best citizens in the U.S. of A? Answer, Christians. Kind of gets me angry when they are the ones that get reviled. So why doesn't God step in and stop it? He can. Because when you're unfairly treated and you continue to live for God, you are blessed by God. It's a badge of honor in the kingdom of God. You're earning your badge. 
You know those things we used to earn? Put them on there, Boy Scouts or whatever? You're earning it. Don't hang your head when you've earned a badge. Even now, you have a blessing. It says there in verse 14, the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Isn't that beautiful? How's your relationship to the Holy Spirit? The powerful, resourceful Holy Spirit rests upon you, Christian. In fact, he lives inside of you. What is he doing resting on you, comforting you, filling you with peace and gladness, bearing you along with his power? I I know the Holy Spirit. I have been full of the Holy Spirit. I have a relationship with the Holy Spirit. I have never in all of my life had the Holy Spirit minister to this weak and foolish man the way he has over the last few weeks. I can't even explain it. I didn't know it was coming. I didn't turn charismatic overnight. Calm down. (laughs) But the Holy Spirit of God is powerful, and he has buried me along and meeting my needs, and I cannot explain it. He has given my heart confidence that he's about to do something wonderful, and that's something wonderful he's doing in my heart. I find myself weeping all the time, and it bothers me. I think of the love of Christ, and I can't help it. He's filled me with a lot of energy, too. It's remarkable to me that suffering and spirit filling go hand in hand. You know, for months this year, I was so beaten down and in too much pain and in a quandary and trying to figure things out, too weak. Even to gather all of my thoughts, people would come up and they say, what are you learning? And I said, well, I'm learning some things, you know, and I would share some of the things I was learning, but it didn't all make sense to me. Honestly, I mean, I know what the scripture says. I know what I'm supposed to be learning. I was learning some of those things. I, I was growing in the Lord. I was growing in the Lord before I was suffering. But now the spiritual benefits are so clearly set before my eyes in ways I just didn't appreciate the way I should have. Very recently, coming out of the hospital the second time, knowing that God is either going to do something special or I am going to pass away very soon, the spirit who rests on us just kept kept working on me and bearing me along with such an intense focus on Christ. Again, I can't explain it. I don't even want to watch sports anymore. That's the strangest thing in the world. (laughs) Or news or movies. I just worship and I learn, I study, I minister all day long and I don't get tired of it. You all don't bother me as much as you used to. (laughs) Here's something else I want you to write down. Suffering safeguards sanctification. You say, what? Psalm 119 is a very long psalm, but right in the middle of it, verse 67, it says this, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. Spurgeon commented on this in a, a sermon he called, What Weak Creatures We Are, and he wrote this, Often our trials act as a thorn hedge to keep us in the good pasture. But our prosperity is a gap through which we go astray. God brings suffering to speed up and to safeguard our sanctification. Encouragement number six. Suffering as a Christian glorifies God. 
Now, that's the hardest one to swallow. Why would God take weak creatures and have them suffer so that he could be glorified? But isn't that what all of life is supposed to be about? Who are you if there's not a God that made you? You're not even a thought. Do I owe all of my existence to God? The answer is yes. When you think about your life and you're going to go home today and make plans, who gave you that life? Who gave you the breath? When you go and look at your bank account and see what you're going to spend on this Christmas season, who gave you all of that money? Who gave you the job? Who gave you the hands to have the job? So when we really think about the Lord our God, uh, yes, he has a right to demand from us if he wanted, to ask from us nicely if he wanted, to glorify his name. And suffering, as a Christian, glorifies God. The verses there say, don't suffer as one who does wrong. I don't know if some of you are being tempted to be a criminal, a juvenile, delinquent, do something you shouldn't do. Don't do that. If you suffer there, we're not going to feel too sorry for you. Better if you're going to suffer, suffer because you are a Christian. And when you suffer, don't feel ashamed. It says, but actually use that name. Someone makes fun of the fact that you're connected to Christ and you're one of those people that believes the Bible is literal and it actually teaches, you know, right and wrong and all of that. Then amplify that. Say, yes, indeed, I am a Christian. I am. I'll tell the world that I'm a Christian. I'm not ashamed his name to bear, the song says. Some people, when they suffer, doubt their salvation. Or they doubt God's mercy and love. If God was merciful and mighty, as we sing in one of the hymns, why isn't he helping me when I'm at my weakest? But God in his word reassures us he knows what is his? In 2 Timothy 2, it says, the Lord knows those who are his. That's a beautiful statement. And when you do the right thing and you suffer, you glorify me, God says. When you can say thank you to God, even when the Lord brings you through losing a job or your house burns down or an infant dies, one of the hardest things to experience a car accident and now you're in therapy for months, loss of a parent, friends who turn on you, job that doesn't promote you, when you could say thank you, God, and mean it, do you know what you're doing? You are glorifying God. Don't be ashamed of your suffering for Christ. You follow the, great, the one who has the greatest name in the universe. And as I said before, he's the one every knee will bow before and every tongue confess. Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I'm going through my suffering and I'm going through whatever treatments I still need to go through. And the one thing I desire above all is, please, God, I want you to get the glory through all of this. It's going to make the suffering worth it if I see that in some way you very specially got glory from this. I don't really want the doctors and the scientists to stand up and wave their flag. I want God to get glory from this. I want you to see that God gets the glory from this. Somehow, you know, I don't know. I know just somehow I want that to happen. The only thing that breathes anything into me is faith in Christ. I sit and listen to everyone give their scientific explanations and percentages. This doesn't do anything for me. It doesn't do anything for me. Only faith in Christ. I, I must see him work. I must. I must see him get the glory. Would you... Pray to that end. Right now, I'm weaker than I've ever been.
Some of you have to tell the other people that are newer to the church how much I used to run around all the time. <laughs> Maybe too much, I think. My family is flourishing right now, and I'm doing nothing. And my church is flourishing, and I'm doing nothing. My soul is flourishing. That's God. That's not Tom. Encouragement number seven. God begins judgment with Christians. That doesn't sound like an encouragement at all, does it? <laughs> this one takes a little explaining. God begins judgment with Christians. We're up to verses 17 and 18. The household of God that is mentioned there is the church, right? According to 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15. So he's saying, during this present time, where's the judgment of God going on? Well, if you read other passages, you'd realize that natural disasters and things like that are the judgment of God. Go back and read Romans 1, and you'll see that when God turns people over to bad moral behavior, such as homosexuality, the homosexual practices itself are part of God's judgment upon a people to shame them. So there's a lot of present judgment of God that's going on in the world itself, but actually he's saying right now what he's doing is he's judging the church. He's judging the household of God. You say, wait a minute, I thought that God was saving his people during the present age. He is. Romans 8.1, there is now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus, right? We are saved from all of God's wrath. You believe in Jesus, you're saved from all of the eternal consequences for your foolish sin. The judgment that Peter means here is not the judgment of condemnation coming on unbelievers, but the judgment of chastisement, the cleaning up of his people, the refinement of his people. God uses suffering to clean us up, to complete us, to make us more like Jesus. And since God is our father, he spanks his children. Now, when God spanks his children, he does it with self-control, and he does it with a reason and a purpose, right? Hebrews 12, 6, those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. God chastens us with purpose. What's the purpose? So we can share his holy character. Yet here is the amazing thing. When we are chastened by the Lord, when he brings that on us, and our heart responds with holiness and humility, even if we're still suffering physically, we experience a fullness of life. And you experience such a fullness of life, you never want to live any other way. Here's another thing to write down. Holiness plus humility equals happiness. Besides, it's highly appropriate for God to begin by cleaning up his own people before judging the nations. In 1 Corinthians 11.32, Paul wrote, and he's referring to saved people, but when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord in order that we may not be condemned along with the, with the world. Now that's a deal I'll take any day. See, just because the judgment of God begins with the household of God, it doesn't mean that it ends with the household of God. What will be the outcome? Or put another way, what will happen to those who do not obey the gospel of God? That's, talk, that's referring to unbelievers. Unbelievers are those who won't obey the gospel. Well, a pretty good answer to that comes from 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 8. Jesus will deal out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Just like cards that get dealt out, he will be dealing them out left and right. 
Thank God. We are going through God's cleansing right now so that we will not be eternally condemned along with the world. As I said, I'll take that kind of purposeful suffering any day rather than facing the torrents of hell. And then just look at verse 18 one more time. It states, it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved. That's also an interesting statement, isn't it? I said, I thought it was easy. You believe in the Lord Jesus and you're saved. Well, why is it difficult? You might say it was difficult for the Lord Jesus. He had to do all the work on the cross, right? But that's not really the context. The difficulty is that before we enter into glory, we have to endure times of suffering below here. And if that is what God does to believers to purify them, can you imagine the terror that will come upon the godless man in the future? What it does, guys, is it just simply puts our suffering in perspective. This cleansing and sanctification that actually results in, in your heart rejoicing and a fuller Christian life, even though, yes, you're weak and limited, we're facing the eternal wrath of God. It just puts it all in perspective, doesn't it? And the last encouragement. Suffering compels us to entrust ourselves to God. This is verse 19. Look at verse 19 again. Let me read it. Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. We can, with peace and serenity, trust what God is doing in our lives. The suffering is according to the will of God. And the will of God, Romans chapter 12 and verse 2 says, is good, even though sometimes it's hard. It says here that God is faithful to us, that he's a faithful creator. What does that mean? Well, as creator, he provided everything that we need. Just look outside. It's raining today. We need that. Everything's still holding together in the universe. All of nature holds together. Who does that? The faithful creator. The one who's the creator is also the sustainer of all things. How do we know God's still working? Because he's holding all of nature together right now. That's not too hard to figure out. So what are we supposed to do in response to all it? Let us entrust our souls to a faithful creator. As that verb indicates, we must learn to give over the supervision of our very selves and place, place the leadership and the supervision of our entire lives right there in his hands, right? Right there in his hands. The song says he's got the whole world in his hands. He can handle your life. I have turned over my life to the Lord many times. It seems with each time the Lord teaches me, I just need to do it again. Just do it again. Laying in the hospital bed, there was one night I couldn't move. I couldn't move. I could barely move. I needed help getting out of bed, walking over, you know, using the restroom, everything. It was Everything was labored. Every little move was labored. Susan spent many nights with me in the hospital, you know, and the nurses and staff, they come in, wake you up about every hour, you know, and do their job. And I had a little break there, and I was laying there, and I was like, I just held out my hands the best I could, and I said, Lord, either you're going to raise me up or I'm not going to make it. There's nothing more I can do. And I don't hear anybody else saying anything that sounds like it's going to work. I took the chemo, and my body rejected it. I'm just too, I'm just too uh, small, too weak. Well, he's returning my strength slowly. I want you to pray. I have a different kind. We prayed hard. Um, tell you this testimony also. I uh, was headed to Hopkins one day. Was it last week? The week before, Susan? The week before, and I 
was last week? I don't forget, forgetting the time. And I just quickly realized I didn't have enough prayer support, and I was shooting out some texts, and I sent out about 20 texts to men. Many of them are in this room, and I said, hey, would you pray for me? I'm going for a second opinion. And within 10 minutes, this was in the morning. This was like 7.45 in the morning. Within 10, 15 minutes, I heard back, not from 20 people, but 25 people, other people that were going to be praying for me as well that they knew of. 15 minutes, people said they're already praying for me. So we went in, and I got a second opinion. I got a second kind of a chemo to try. It's very, it's brand new. Um, so we're praying about that, praying about the wisdom of that. But my point is that turn it all over to the Lord and say, Lord, please lead and please guide us. Every day, I entrust my life to him. Every day, I entrust my family to him and the church. I entrust to him as well. To you, I would say, don't blame God for every hard thing you go through. Trust him as he turns wrong into right, as he turns hard lessons into beautiful experiences in your soul. Go before the Lord each day. Psalm 55:22 gives you words to say. Cast your burden upon the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never allow the righteous to be shaken. Notice that we entrust everything to God by continuing to do what is right, it says in verse 19. Jesus, again, is our example. 1 Peter 2, 21 through 23, Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to the one who judges rightly. These people are messing up the whole crucifixion thing. They, they knew not who they were killing, but Christ was at peace. He kept entrusting himself to the one who judges rightly. That's what we do. And we do that by continuing to do what is right. I know suffering's hard. When you suffer, you may not want to do anything, much less do something right. God has given me such a heart for suffering people. He's enlarged my heart. But I would say, if you're suffering, do what is right. Don't, and don't forget, just because you're suffering, that there's nobody else suffering around you. Be there for them in whatever way you can. Pray for them. I know you can do that. Offer them your help. We have such a wonderful, loving church. And I think as I hear testimonies at Thanksgiving and at my house, some people came over and gave testimonies. As I hear other people give testimonies, I think this church is more and more loving. I think that it's a wonderful thing to belong to Hope Bible Church. And when you hurt a little and you see people care about you, it means a lot. I want us to resolve... That Hope Bible Church, never to let a fellow soldier of the cross fall on the battlefield and suffer alone. For we are the household of God. And our Father is the loving Father above. Amen. Amen.